We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 19, verse 31. It's about 80% of the way uh, through your Bibles. We are nearing the end of our year and a half long series through Uh, the Gospel of John, and we're currently in a section of narrative uh, in which Jesus has been crucified. Uh, Now, in uh, we know in hindsight that as we read the account that Jesus went went intentionally to his death, bearing the sins of the world. But the disciples who are with him and observing the events, uh, they couldn't see that. They could. They didn't know that. They, um, they barely understood that he was going intentionally, let alone what he was doing there. Uh, and so uh, even with uh, thousands of years of hindsight and contemplation and a mound of new uh, revelation that we've been given in the form of the New Testament as to what was happening on the cross, we understand Uh, far more than they do uh, than they did in the moment. And yet I would argue that even we can't fully comprehend what was happening as Jesus died on the cross. Uh, And and yet we have to try our best to to live there and comprehend what was happening. Uh, But we know that Jesus is there. We know that he has been nailed to the cross, that he's dying in our place for our sin, that it's for the sin of the world that he's gone there. Uh, There's many different aspects of what is happening and what's being accomplished as Jesus dies on the cross. In the Western world, we live in what we would call a guilt-innocence culture. And as a result, we tend to focus on the fact that Jesus uh, is bearing our sin in this moment and that he is declared guilty. Um, so that we can be declared innocent. In other cultures that aren't guilt-innocent cultures, they might actually focus uh, more prominently on other aspects of the cross. But within our culture, because that's some of the things that we wrestle with, ah, there's this law, I don't measure up to the law, I'm guilty as an individual under the law before God. That's one of the things that we celebrate in the cross, is that Jesus bore our sin Um, He received the guilty verdict so that we could be declared innocent. Uh, And all of that is true, uh, that uh, it was, we like to sing, it was my sin that held him there uh, until it was accomplished. Though uh, what was being accomplished there was actually much greater than even Jesus being declared uh, guilty while we are declared innocent. Innocent. We could equally say it was my shame uh, that held him there. Uh, and now I am honored in God's sight. I can be honored before the Lord because he bore my shame. Uh, Jesus drank deeply of my rejection uh, so that I could be accepted in uh, God's sight. Uh, he experienced the hell that I was destined for so that the way to the kingdom of heaven would be opened up for me. Uh, He was, in some sense, uh, disowned at the cross by his Father so that uh, you and I could be adopted into the family of God. His uh, death uh, is the basis of my life before God. His suffering becomes the basis of my healing before the Lord. Uh, It's scandalous, really. Uh, what Jesus is doing, what he accomplished 
uh, at the cross. And it goes without saying that uh, culture at large uh, finds this offensive. And I would say that sometimes we do too, that even within the church, uh, within the bride of Christ, if we're honest, I think a lot of us uh, still have this deep internal wrestling with the true nature uh, of what was being accomplished on the cross, with the true nature of our salvation. Uh, it can be easy for us to sort of lapse back into a works righteousness mindset that, oh, okay, I was saved by grace, but now I have this life to live before God, uh, and I ought to live that under the law. I need to uh, prove myself in the sight of God or even in the sight of others within the church culture uh, and show sort of my, uh, my religious zeal or even my self-worth, or we, we can easily um, bleed back into uh, some form of works and righteousness in order to prove that we are worthy or that we're acceptable. I need to sort of generate my own righteousness in a sense. We have something to prove before God and others. Uh, and, and so the cross can continue to be a stumbling block. I think it's something that uh, we continue to wrestle with even after we've been saved by the cross and are walking uh, after Jesus. I think we need to continue to, to wrestle with, I think, a lot of the deep things that we feel in our hearts uh, of our own uh, rejection or lack of self-worth uh, or uh, condemnation. We, we continue to wrestle with these things, uh, and, and yet the, the answer is in front of us. It is the cross, yet we need to incorporate that sort of deeper uh, into, uh, into who we are. I think it's really easy because the, the cross is, is so shocking, uh, it's so counterintuitive, the way that Jesus has come to save us. It's really easy for us to have this inner questioning of like, is this really it? Does it really work the way that they're saying it does? Does it actually, can, can, can I put my full weight on the cross, so to speak? Um, or maybe not. Is this really the total basis for life with God? Or, or, or is there something else that I need to do or accomplish on my own? Sometimes we aren't so sure. Sometimes we try to sort of hedge our bets and say, oh, I don't want to risk everything on that, on that idea, on that interpretation. So perhaps um, I, I should continue to live under the law or try and prove myself in these different ways. Uh, or sometimes it's just straight pride. Uh, our pride, our ego flares up, and, and we don't want to be dependent on the cross. We want to be self-sufficient. There's something in the heart of humanity that says, no, I can do this on my own. I, I don't want to feel helpless. I don't want to feel dependent. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I was saved by the cross, but from here forward, I'm going to do this on my own strength um, and, and prove something. Now, the scriptures say, uh, that the foolishness of God is greater than the greatest human wisdom. Love that line. His, what the, the, the most foolish thing God has ever done is just trumps any, any human wisdom that we could come up with on our own. The weakness of God is greater than any human strength. Uh, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Scripture says. It's incomprehensible. It's silly, it's, it's stupid, it's meaningless to those who are perishing. 
to those who are clinging to the world, to those who would attempt to justify themselves. Uh, justify yourself is maybe a bit of religious language, but it's really common in secular culture to say, no, I'm a good person. I'm going to prove myself through my own good deeds. I'm good enough. I don't need uh, the cross. I don't need. If you're living in that world, a crucified Messiah is foolishness. It's com- it's incomprehensible. It's completely silly. Uh, it, the thinking is like that. That's not how the universe is supposed to work. The moral, spiritual universe, as we can discern it, shouldn't work that way. <laughs> Uh, surely we know better than that. It, it sort of offends what we perceive to be the moral laws of the universe. I would say it's almost logically offensive to humanity. Like, how does that even work? It, it seems spiritually improbable, if not impossible, that someone else could, could even bear my sin or be in my place. And just, does that even make sense? It, it can become the stumbling block to us that is difficult to grasp. But when we look on it, we say, man, this is, this is counterintuitive, but this is the wisdom of God. God in His deep, unbounded, infinite wisdom chose to save us this way. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It is foolishness to the non-Jewish world or the Gentiles, it it deeply offends and confuses something within us, within the human heart, and therefore in most uh, human cultures, there's something about the cross that just makes us stumble. It's it's offensive. It it offends our pride, our self-sufficiency. But there he is, the Son of God, nailed to the cross for the sins of the world. Naked and shamed, beaten beyond recognition, dying in the lowliest place among criminals. And die he did. As Jesus comes to his final moments on the cross, which we studied uh, these last couple weeks, he says simply, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. And after proclaiming this, Scripture says he he breathed his last and, and he gave up his spirit. He died on the cross. This is what we read next, picking up in verse 31. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers uh, pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. 
He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another Scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Let's pray. Lord, we bring our hearts before you now, and we pray that you would bring the reality of the cross to bear on our lives. Lord, so often, uh, if we know of you at all, and we know of the cross, we can kind of compartmentalize it and stick it in some other category and not feel the historical reality of it, um, not live in light of it, uh, or even allow it to affect the deep things within our hearts, uh, the deep insecurity or fear or a sense of condemnation or accusation. We, we continue to carry those, Lord, and we don't always know how to connect the wisdom and power of the cross uh, to the deep ache of our hearts. So would you come in the power of the Spirit and just begin working out some of the, um, the deep uh, wounds that we carry, the deep lies that we wrestle with, with the beauty and reality of the cross come to bear on us. And uh, as I was praying right before the teaching, I just had those, those uh, words come to mind uh, from history. May, may the lamb have the reward of his suffering. Uh, Jesus, you, you've already suffered. You've already done it. It is accomplished. But I pray that that finished work would come to bear on our lives. Would you receive the reward of your suffering in this place? In the power of the Spirit, and in Jesus' name, amen. As the holiday weekend approaches, um, not only is it a Sabbath day, um, but a special Sabbath day is on the horizon. And as a result, the Jewish leaders approach Pilate and they ask uh, the Roman soldiers to break the legs of the people being crucified. Uh, death by crucifixion was agonizing and long. And death for most people was ultimately by asphyxiation. Because of the way that victims were nailed to the cross with their um, weight hanging on their arms above their heads, uh, their shoulders would often dislocate as they were hanging there. But as a result of the weight of their body and the angle at which they're hanging, it would also force their lungs closed. So they're naturally hanging in a low position with their lungs closed. They actually can't take a true um, intake of breath at that angle. And so in order to breathe, they have to push themselves up on the cross into an elevated position, take in a breath of air before sinking back down again on the cross. And every time they sank back down, they would begin to uh, asphyxiate again. Um, in fact, modern uh, studies have used ropes and tied people to crosses just to see the effect of this position. And in some cases, uh, the people who volunteered for these studies, uh, in some cases, went unconscious within a couple of minutes because of the angle at which they were hanging. So death uh, would have been by asphyxiation. 
uh, keep in mind that in Jesus' case, he is not tied to the cross. He's been uh, nailed to the cross through his wrists and his feet, through some of the most sensitive uh, nerve clusters in the body. And in order to take a deep breath, in his case, he would have had to push down on the nails that were driven through his feet, which would have driven the nails further up and into his feet, and pulled up on dislocated arms, pulling again on those nerve clusters in order to take in a single breath before sinking back down again. Uh, If you've ever uh, slammed your elbow on something uh, and said, oh, I hit my my funny bone, um, you're actually bumping or tapping that same cluster of nerves that would have been driven straight through in the process of crucifixion. Uh, So the agony of the cross uh, is tied up in this um, being nailed in this position and struggling hour over hour, moment over moment to breathe. You have to push up on and, and pull on those nerve clusters in order to take a breath before sinking back down and beginning to uh, asphyxiate again. Um, in fact, in some cases, the Romans would actually install a little seat uh, on the cross or even a board uh, beneath the victim's feet because um, if they could stay slightly more elevated, then it would drag out the torture and the humiliation. If you're on a little seat, then you're still in excruciating pain. Uh, In fact, that word excruciating was invented because of crucifixion. It means out of the cross in Latin is the word excruciating. They could prolong that torture and and, um, make crucifixion last days by simply putting a little seat or something for them to stand on because that would prevent them from asphyxiating. Uh, In this case, it appears these victims uh, do not have a seat of any kind. They're simply hanging on the cross. And so what the Romans would do in special cases, including this case, in order to speed up death, they would go around and break the legs of those who were being crucified. Because if your legs were broken, you were then unable to push up and receive that breath, and you would asphyxiate within a couple of minutes as opposed to hours or even days. So they're trying to speed up the process of death by doing this. If you can't push up, you cannot breathe, and you're dead within a few minutes instead of hours or days. Uh, The Romans agree to this request from the Jews, but you have to keep in mind that as a Roman soldier overseeing a crucifixion, it was your life or theirs. At this time, place, and culture in the ancient world, that was the rule. If you were responsible for executing someone and they escaped or somehow survived the execution attempt, then you would be executed in in their place uh, because you had failed. Um, The same was true of prisoners who were under your care. If a prisoner under your care escaped, then you were to be killed in their place. And we see this uh, in various times and places throughout the narrative of Scripture. Some of you might remember in the book of Acts when um, God brings an earthquake and Paul and, and some of his associates are in prison for preaching the gospel. He bring, God brings an earthquake. The prison doors swing open. 
their chains fall off. And through the process of the earthquake, the prison, uh, the warden, the guard, uh, wakes up. And it, just imagine a really dark scene, and he can tell something happened, and oh my gosh, all the doors are open. All these prisoners must have escaped. So what he does is he draws his sword and prepares to kill himself. And, and this is why. This is the backdrop. Because he's thinking, well, I can be um, publicly humiliated and executed and, and paraded around as a failure before they put me to death, or I can just get it over with right now. I can do the honorable thing. I can take my own life. So he goes to fall on his sword, and, and Paul yells from his cell, don't do it. Like, we're, we're still here. We, we haven't left. Don't fall on your sword, which is something he can't comprehend. Like, why are you still here? But in that context, he's, he's, Paul's essentially saying, no, we've stayed. We're staying in prison so that you, are, you won't be executed. Um, and in the aftermath, it's beautiful. They all you know, have a meal together. Him and his entire family give their lives to Jesus. The gospel continues to spread. But this is the backdrop. Um, even for the, the soldiers who are going to be guarding the tomb uh, in, in this next section of narratives, the same rule is, is hanging over their heads. If something happens and this body gets stolen, you will be executed. It is on pain of death that you complete your task. It's their life or yours. So the soldiers who are overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus know that if anyone comes down from their cross alive, even by some uh, fluke or accident or mistake, that they themselves will be put to death in order to make up for that mistake. And the Romans, they knew how to kill people. They knew all about the art of torture and death. They had been crucifying people uh, for a long time at this point and had crucified thousands. There was a dark art that they had perfected and were using in this case. They knew how to prolong death as long as possible, and they knew how to recognize death when it came. We don't have exposure to those environments, except for some of you who work in the hospitals. You might have a little more experience with this. Most of us do not see death in any form um, or, or know what that's like. Many of us have never even seen someone die or seen a dead body. You have to imagine these soldiers lived in this. This was their, this was their arena. This is what they did. Uh, and they were very good at it. They lived in this space. They knew the difference between someone who was in shock or someone who had gone unconscious and someone who was dead. So the order comes down from Pilate. Hey, you've got the green light to go ahead and speed this up. Go around and break their legs. Finish them off. Put them to death. And that's exactly what they do to the criminal on Jesus' right and to the one on Jesus' left. Their legs are broken. They are dead within a few minutes. But when they come to Jesus, they can recognize, clear as day, this man is dead. We know what death looks like. We've put many people to death, uh, and this man is already dead. That is a dead body. But remember that their lives are on the line, that they can't afford to mess this up. So they decide to make triple sure that, in fact, he is dead. Uh, in fact, in one of the gospel accounts, we read that Joseph uh, goes to Pilate and actually requests the dead body of Jesus. That so Jesus has died on the cross. Can we have his body? We'd like to give him a proper burial. Uh, most victims of crucifixion 
were the lowliest of society, and they would, they, many of them did not receive any form of burial. They were, they were thrown out into ditches. They were given to you know, the dogs and the ravens. Joseph Arimathea said, no, we want to give this man a proper burial. Uh, and in the narrative, we're told that Pilate is surprised. He says he, he's surprised or caught off guard that Jesus is already dead. Uh, Jesus died much faster than most victims of crucifixion for reasons that we'll look at in a moment. But you just have to imagine that you're the Roman soldier who's been tasked with crucifying these Jewish criminals. In your minds, they are subhuman. They are uh, just the lowest of the low. They are trash. You're there just to uh, execute them and throw them out somewhere. Uh, But the order comes down from your highest commanding officer, not from Caesar, but not that far uh, from Caesar, your highest commanding officer. uh, Go ahead and finish these guys off. Oh, and by the way, make sure that this Jesus guy is really dead. Pilate's a little bit suspicious uh, or caught off guard of the fact that he died as quickly as he did. So the Roman soldier takes his spear and snuffs out any last tiny miraculous hope that Jesus might still somehow be alive. He says, we're just going to finish this off. We're going to end any chance. So he drives the spear into Jesus' side and upward into his heart. In the process, uh, his his inner organs would have been destroyed, and his heart would have been completely shredded. The spear went straight through his heart, and back out again. But as the spear is removed, we're told that blood and water came flowing out of Jesus' side. Blood and water. Now, blood, you might expect. Jesus is covered in his own blood at this point. His body is soaked in blood. He's, he's bleeding all over the place. But water, what a curious detail to include. Why would water flow out of a totally dehydrated man who's just died? The significance of the water, I think, is twofold. First off, it's medically significant, but I think it's spiritually significant as well. Uh, Modern medicine has recently come up with a diagnosis of the cause of death for Jesus that I find very compelling. Uh, Remember that before Jesus is crucified, he's flogged. And in that process, the skin and tendons would have been shredded off of his back. Uh, In many cases, through the process of flogging, um, your inner organs would be exposed to the open air because of the damage that was done. But through that process, he would have lost a tremendous amount of blood, as you could imagine. And so what would happen to victims of flogging is that they would ultimately go into shock. Imagine that your heart has to beat faster and faster and faster to pump a decreasing volume of blood through all the same veins and arteries. So it's working in overtime as your body's going into shock. And as the heart does that, 
and starts to go into shock, uh, a, a, oftentimes a clear fluid begins to build up uh, around in the sac that's surrounding the heart in a process that's called pericardial effusion. So there's this clear liquid building up around his heart. Uh, to make matters worse, as Jesus walks out to the place of crucifixion, he's forced to carry the cross beam for the cross. Uh, in many cases, the upright beam was permanently fixed in place, but victims had to carry their own cross beam, which by itself would have weighed about 100 pounds. And as he's walking on the road out to, outside of the city to go and be crucified, we're told that he begins to stumble and black out and that he falls to the ground. Uh, and likely that's from the shock and the loss of blood that he's experienced. But as he collapses to the ground, that 100-pound crossbeam would have crushed his chest and crushed his heart in the process, um, only uh, adding to the shock and the buildup of fluid around his heart. So when the soldier pierces Jesus' side and puts a spear up into his heart, uh, not only does the last of his blood flow out of his body, uh, but this clear, watery liquid would have flowed out as well. Um, now, the people watching, including John, the author who's written this firsthand account, uh, he doesn't understand what's happening. They don't understand. They don't know what that means. They would have had no frame of reference for this. They have never seen this before. They will never see this again because of the specific way that this unfolded. But they were there, and they saw firsthand what happens, and they said as eyewitnesses, essentially like, no, we can't deny it. We can't write it any other way than the way that it happened. We saw water flowing out of Jesus' side. I don't know why. I can't comprehend. I can't explain that to you, but that's what happened. We were there. In fact, at this same point in the narrative, John sort of breaks out of the narrator role uh, and steps into the light a little bit. And he says, the man who saw this, referring to himself, has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. John's like stepping out into the limelight and saying, I, I'm telling you, I was there, I saw this, this is how it went down. I don't know why, I don't know how, but this is what happened to Jesus. There was actually water flowing out of his side. And John had no paradigm for that, but I believe today modern medicine has been able to uh, explain uh, why and how this was happening to Jesus' body demonstrating exactly how he died. So in my mind, the water is actually significant in terms of verifying the historical accuracy of John's gospel. Uh, but the water is significant for another reason as well. And I want to mention that as we close. Um, hundreds of years before this crucifixion, uh, the prophet Ezekiel received a vision of water flowing out of the temple of God. You could see the temple, and there was water flowing out of it. Uh, and, and in this vision, the water was life-giving water that was um, bringing life to a dying world. There was death all over the place, but everything that the water touched and flowed over began to be transformed and come 
to life. Uh, and, and in his vision, the water actually starts at the altar in the temple, and it starts as a little trickle. Like you can almost imagine like a, a faucet that's just sort of dripping at a quick pace. But then it begins to pool in the temple and it begins to flow out. And curiously, within the vision, the further the water flows from the temple, the deeper and wider the river got. Until it became this huge thing that you couldn't even swim across. It's so deep and so wide, just flowing out over the earth, bringing things from death to life. Uh, and this wasn't just a, f a throwaway vision or an odd dream uh, that Ezekiel had. It actually resonated. It, it, ca it captured the, the hearts and minds of, of the Jewish people. And they had an annual week-long festival in which people anticipated this future life-giving flow of water that would one day come from the temple of God. And so what they would do during this seven-day feast is that um, each one of the, the normal days, uh, they, a, a priest would come and would take a, a bucket of water. Water is like very, uh, a very rare commodity in Jerusalem because it's built up on a mountain. There's just not a natural water source there. It's actually the only city in the world, I think, that's built in that type of location. But water was rare. But they did have a spring, and he would take a bucket of water and, you know, as part of this religious ceremony, would go into the temple and pour it out on the altar. So they could see f visibly, oh, there's water flowing off the altar. And they would do this regularly during the seven days. But on the last and greatest day of the festival, they would get a procession going. And there would be all of these priests who were like going back and forth from the well to the altar, from the well to the altar in this line and pouring out buckets of water until the water began to flow off the altar and out of the temple as people were celebrating and saying, Lord, one day you're going to do this. One day life-giving water is going to flow out of the temple of God and bring life to a dying world. And it's in that context, in John chapter 7, that we read about Jesus making this uh, incredible statement. It's, we're told that it was on the last and greatest day of the festival, this festival I've just described. So they're pouring water out. They're celebrating, Lord, come do this one day. You're going to pour out life-giving water on the earth. And it's in this moment of heightened anticipation and prayer and prophetic celebration that Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those he be who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The temple was the place where heaven met with earth. It, it was the focal point of God's presence. The place where God met with his people. That's what a temple was. That's what the temple in Jerusalem was designed to be. But when Jesus was walking on the earth, where was the temple? It was Jesus. 
from the moment that Jesus was born on, onto the earth, Jesus was the temple. From that moment forward, the old temple became obsolete. They didn't recognize it yet. They, they were unwilling to let go of that prestige and that power. But Jesus superseded the temple. He became the new temple. He was the place where heaven met with earth. He was the focal point of the presence of God. Where is God meeting with his people? Well, it's no longer behind a veil at a building in Jerusalem. The, the temple's here. The temple's walking through Capernaum, healing people who are paralyzed and lamed and blind. The temple is preaching. The te Jesus was the temple on earth. And he said so. Ironically, he was standing in front of their temple, but he said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. What's he talking about? He's not talking about their stones. He's talking about the temple. Destroy this temple. And it will be raised again to life in three days. I am the temple, Jesus is saying. And, and as Jesus is uh, glorified and exalted and lifted high on the cross for the sin of the world, streams of living water begin flowing out of him. Remember those words. Are you thirsty, Jesus says. Come and drink of, of my the very essence of who I am. My life given for you. This, this living water is going to be poured out for your sake. Hebrews 10 says it this way. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain, that is his body broken for us, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with full, the full assurance that faith brings. Now listen to this. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, that's the blood, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. As we come to receive from Jesus, we receive the very essence of who he is, his body broken, his blood shed, and curiously, we receive blood and water. And as we do, Scripture says we are cleansed, we are transformed, we are made new. You, you, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are now a new creation who can come right into the holy of holies, into the most holy place. And Jesus says from that point forward, from that moment of transformation forward, as you give your life to Jesus, as you receive the Holy Spirit, he says streams of living water will now flow from you out to a thirsty and dying world. Interesting. There was a temple in Jerusalem 
that was replaced by the physical body of Jesus as God incarnated. That was the new temple. But Jesus, in his renewed, physical, resurrected body, ascended to the right hand of the Father. There goes the temple. Temple was here. It was replaced. He's he's now at the right hand of the Father. Where's the temple? He he left. The, the, The Jews have the foundation of the temple left in Jerusalem. They're, they're worshiping there right now. The Muslims have Mecca. The Hindus and Buddhists have thousands of temples around the world. Where's our temple? It's you. It's you and it's me. We are the temple of the living God. We are the place where heaven meets with earth, the focal point of God's presence on earth. is you and me, the presence of God, the Holy Spirit in us. And that trickle of water that began at the temple, running out of Jesus' side, has continued to spread out across the earth. And the further it goes, the deeper and wider it gets. And now we can say there are billions of people in whom the presence of God is residing as streams of living water flow across our planet, transforming a dying world. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, Jesus says. Receive forgiveness and cleansing and freedom and satisfaction and hope and rebirth and eternal life. Anyone can come. There is no cost that you have to pay. Come and drink. It's flowing from the temple of the Lord available at incredible cost to God, but free for you. So come. Any, is anyone thirsty? Come to me and drink. Receive all that I have. But know that as you do, you will be transformed. You will be changed. God will take up residence in you. You will become a temple of the living God. For whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your body broken. We thank you for your blood shed. We thank you for the water, Lord that began flowing from the temple of God, that the first people saw and wouldn't have understood medically, but they understood water supposed to flow out of the temple. 
Water is supposed to flow out of the temple and bring life to a dying world, and it's finally happening. So as we see you there, Lord, crucified, blood and water flowing from your side, knowing, knowing it's, it's done, it's finished, it's been accomplished. Lord, I pray that if there's, there's anyone here who's never come under the power of the cross, who's never said yes to you, who's never acknowledged the Son of God crucified, and as we'll see in a few weeks, the Son of God resurrected again. Lord, I pray that um, there would just be a simple spirit of surrender this morning. But if there's anyone here who's never done that, that we would just be able to say yes to you. Lord, I see you crucified. I know you to be resurrected alive again at the right hand of the Father. Lord, would, would they have the courage to surrender in that way this morning? And Jesus, for, uh, for those of us who have already given our lives to you, uh, Lord, we're not even always sure what the appropriate response is. Some of us want to weep. Some of us want to, to quietly contemplate. Some, some of us want to allow that finished work to slowly sink into the deep recesses of who we are, setting us free from shame and guilt and inadequacy. And we just want to sit in silence before the cross and just let uh, the, the blood and the water do a better work in us than the death that we've inherited from the world. Uh, and, and Lord, some of us will just want to celebrate uh, in, in, in light of who you are and what you've accomplished. Lord, there's, there's space for all of that here this morning. Uh, but may all of us see you there, crucified, with blood and water flowing from your side. Lord, just give us a heart to receive that this morning as we turn our eyes toward you, as we worship you, as we receive you afresh. I think of that line in Scripture that says, we've, we've come uh, to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's a way of the family of Adam. There's a way of the world. There's a way of sin that just breeds death and has given us death. Uh, and yet, curiously, in, the, in this death, Everything is being reversed. Everything is being undone. We receive life again. So we lift you high in this place, Jesus. We, we bow to you. We submit our lives to you. We worship you. We celebrate you. We receive you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.